welcome. Welcome to church, everybody. Uh, my name is Matt Moberg. Thrilled that you are with us here on this Sunday night. Debbie, I see that you, you placed the elements on the tall chair and not the small chair. And I'm still dealing with a lot of toxic masculinity, and so I'm trying to go to the tall chair for now until I get that all sorted out. Welcome to church. We are in this series, this Lenten series, that we're taking this space before Easter to try to take seriously how do our stories merge with the story of Christ? And I guess our approach this year is to say, can we get a front row seat to the last days of Christ? What went down in this man's life as he was approaching the end of his life? Uh, today we are on Tuesday. Let me read the text without further ado, unless somebody else wants to. Patty, can you put up that text right now? It reads like this, and they sent, this is the Tuesday of his life, the Tuesday prior to his death, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to said to him, teacher, we know that you're true. And you do not care about anybody's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Do they actually know that? Do they actually believe the things they're saying right there? My hunch is no. Is it lawful, they asked, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they ended up bringing him one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. You guys have a read. So I have this, like, I've been trying to go through the Gospel of Mark as a whole in its totality in this Lenten season. But you get to this part here where it's like this climactic moment where everything has been meeting to this place and all of a sudden it's going to go crashing down. Do you ever just pause and wonder, like, how did we, how did we get here? How did, like, this guy from the boondocks who nobody really knew who he was, how did he become, like, public enemy number one? I know that you and I, last time we gathered in this space, we talked about how there's a difference between what Jesus died for and what Jesus was killed for. Jesus was killed because he was a threat to the spiritual, economic, political landscape of Rome and the Jewish elites who were holding it up. But have you ever thought, like, how did he go from person we did not know about to the person? I mean, think about it for one moment. If you size up Jesus' totality of his life, you've got 30 years that are missing. 30 years that we don't know who he is. By and large, this is a man who is completely anonymous. I know that you and I, we tend to make a big deal out of his birth and we celebrate Christmas on that occasion. But even if you take the birth narrative as it's presented to us in the Gospels, who shows up to that? You have a nobody from Nazarene that has low-income workers that are being exploited by the powerful in Rome and the elites in, Jew in, in Israel. They are the only people who show up to his birth. Shepherds from the hills. Those who have no relational connection. For 30 years, he goes missing. For 30 years, nobody puts down on paper anything this man does outside of one field trip to the temple when he's 12. We don't see him again, though, until he's 30 years old, 
standing on the side of the Jordan River, asking his cousin John to dip him into the water to baptize him. This is a nobody. By and large, actually, you know, a lot of scholars have gone on to say that if Jesus were to keep on doing what Jesus was doing out in the sticks, the healing of the lepers, the opening of blind eyes, the calling the dead to rise again, the, the defying of laws of buoyancy and walking on water, all of those pieces, nobody would really have beef with him. It is what it is. Magic man in the sticks with all of his tricks, let him be, let him do what he is. How did he go from that person that was covered in obscurity covered in anonymity to all of a sudden being public enemy number one? How did he go from that person to being the person who is calling the Herodians and the Pharisees together and they're saying, this man needs to die? What is the change that happened? Welcome to the Tuesday of the final week of Jesus. Let me recall for you the events that have transpired this far. Debbie brought us into Sunday, also known as Palm Sunday. Jesus enters into the city. Debbie, he's welcomed as a king, celebrated. There are some people in the crowd who are shouting, Hosanna, Messiah, this is the guy that we've been waiting for. Come Monday, they start to question the things that they said on Sunday. Because on Monday, Jesus goes into the temple and he starts flipping over tables. He had a homemade whip that he used to drive out the animals from the temple courts. All the money changers, flipping over tables, everybody that was a merchant in those spaces, he called out and he pushed out. And on Monday, when you start to tamper with like the economic system of the empire at Ham, he is dead within a week. Immediately they start to conspire, how do we get this guy to go? How do we end the, the run that this man has been on? That's Monday. Celebrated as a king on Sunday, scorned as a crook on Monday, and he wakes up on Tuesday. And you would think the haters might say that he didn't learn his lesson because he went to bed on Monday as a lion. He didn't exactly wake up on Tuesday as a lamb. Immediately he starts to pick fights. He gathers people together and he starts talking about slumlord landlords, about greed. He says, pay no mind to the hypocrisy of the priests, the religious elites. Their piety would have you believe that they are a lot more cleaner than they actually are. One fight after another, this man is picking. And then we get to this climactic moment where Mark goes out of his way to say, you know, there are people who are going to come and challenge him, but it's not like general public. It's the Herodians and the Pharisees. And for every first century listener, second century listener, and third century listener, they would have said, red flag, red flag, because those two don't get along. That would be like if AOC and MTG were to come together and co-sponsor a bill. They don't work together. These are adversaries. They're not in cahoots with one another. But the stakes are so high that for whatever reason, they conspire, they lock each other's arms, and they come together to capture a Christ. They try to trap him with this question, why is that so? Now, I read that text a moment ago, I invited somebody in here to do the same. TJ, I thought it would be you, but it's okay that it wasn't. 
But nobody was really like leaning forward with bated breath wondering, how could we be reading something as politically subversive? Something with, with this many sharp corners as we just read. And my hunch is that is because largely we didn't know the history about it. Myself included. But I want to read, re, like, um, I've been deep in these studies this past week trying to understand, like, why does this seem so catalytic? Why is this scene the thing that sets the whole thing on fire? Why is this the spark that, that changes everything in the story of the Christ that has lingered in our, our imaginations, our, our, our understanding of the world for 2,000 plus years? And the best way we can understand it is by going back prior to Christ. 200 years before Jesus, there is a guerrilla warrior leader named Judea, Judas Maccabeus. And at some point in his life, while he was growing up under a different kind of empire, not Rome, but Greeks, his dad turned to him and he said to him, listen, son, you have one task and the only task you have to take on for the totality of your life is you need to avenge. You need to pay back to the Gentiles what they gave to you. Make them pay for what they did to our people. We've been under the heavy boot of Greece We've been under the heavy boot of these Greek warriors, these emperors, these governments, these, these, these end-all, be-alls. Make them pay for what they did to us. For the rest of your life, that's the sole task you are asked to be taking on, is you make them pay, and he did. 200 years before the Tuesday we are taking on today, Judas Maccabeus leads this group of, of rebels, if you will, in the eyes of the empire at that time, and they go into Jerusalem. Now catch every moment of the story of Judas. Judas goes into the city of Jerusalem. He is welcomed with a parade. People are screaming Hosanna upon his arrival. People are celebrating, saying, this is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. And you know what he does the next day? He goes into the temple to clean it. He drives out everybody that's making it impure. He says, like, this is not how it is supposed to be. His follow-up, his encore activity, if you will, is he goes into the public town square and he says, listen, I understand what the Greeks are all about. That's not what we are all about. So let me make it plain that the vision that I'm casting is not a duplicate of the Greek one that's been casted. I am talking about a kingdom that is coming where God is on the throne. A different kind of reign with a different kind of liberation, with a different kind of justice, a new reality where everybody thrives, everybody is flourishing. And it works. 200 years before this Tuesday, Judas Maccabeus, the one they called the sledgehammer or the hammer of the Jews, he marches into Jerusalem and the Greeks all have to march out. It's a win in some ways. Because shortly after, Judas captures the city and they, they change things according to the vision that he had casted. 
Well, he kind of goes on to sell his soul a little bit, and he signs a peace treaty with the Romans. And so ultimately, if you're looking at it from a historical perspective, you have one kind of empire that's being traded in for a different kind of empire. And yes, there are slight alterations, but they're not much different. It's a victory, I guess, but also kind of like, not really. Now, prior to history, like really saying, like, Judas, you didn't do what we thought you would do. What he had done was he established a new kind of prototype, Israel. If you're looking for a Messiah, if you're looking for like some kind of ultimate liberator, if you're looking for somebody who's going to put a cape on his back and change things, this is what it looks like. I'm that guy. Look for the parade. Look for the cleansing of the temple. Look for the shouting of a new kind of kingdom. Look for the striking of revolutionary. Like, that's, this is what it looks like. In the aftermath of Judas, that's what the people look for. 25 years prior to this Tuesday that we were talking about today, this Tuesday that we looked at in Scripture, another Judas comes onto the scene. This is Judas the Galilean. He is also, like, armed with a, a crew of bandits, the Sicarii known in Jerusalem, dagger men, swords men. And they also are going into the city to the cheers of the crowd. Everybody loves that they're here. Everybody's psyched that they're here. This Judas, not Judas Maccabeus, but Judas the Galilean, he goes into the city and, and he does exactly what the previous Judas, the one that he was named after, does. Celebrate it. Next day, goes into the temple, clears out everybody that is making it defiled, everybody that's making it impure. Everybody that's causing a wrinkle in what should be God's flourishing plan, he clears them out. He goes on, just like Judas prior to, to say that, like, this is a time for revolution. Stop paying money to Caesar. Stop giving, like, your taxes to Rome. In doing so, you're not only committing idolatry, you're also complicit in a military system that is oppressing the poor that you call your brothers and sisters and family. Stop thinking about that game. Week after he proclaimed this thing, 25 years after, before Jesus, when Jesus was maybe a kindergarten, he's killed. Rome, he, they, they lynch him publicly to make a scene of this man. It's really important, you guys. I don't mean to Bible nerd on you. I know I have a tendency to do so sometimes, admittedly. But, like, if you want to understand the moments that we are encountering when we talk about the last week of Jesus, understand, is, understand Judas 1 and Judas 2. <laughs> like, history sets the stage for what we are seeing right now because what have we seen thus far? Jesus goes into Jerusalem like Judas went into Jerusalem, like Judas number 2 went into Jerusalem. Jesus receives the cheers of the crowd like Judas 1 and Judas 2. Jesus hears Hosanna like Jesus, Judas 1 and Judas 2. Jesus on Monday of the last days of Jesus goes into the temple to clear it out. Says, nobody, you've made the house of the Lord, the house of prayer into a den of robbers. A place where like everybody that is thieving, doing crooked things, it gets a green light. He clears it all out just like Judas 1 and Judas 2. You can't understand the moments that we've seen of Jesus in the last week of Jesus without understanding the moments that we saw with Judas and Judas number two. Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Galilean. 
And so understand that when you get to this moment here in Mark 12, the first gospel that is written on the life of Jesus Christ, there's a reason why Mark goes out of his way to say that the Herodians and the Pharisees are locking arms. Said it already, but I'll say it once more. This is like the two political parties of that day. They don't lock arms. They've been like fighting. They're sworn enemies. I hate you. You hate me. We're good with that mutual hatred that is happening. We're not for one another. We don't conspire together. We don't collaborate together. We're not working for the same kind of vision. So far be it for me to side with you. Far be it for you to side with me. We're on a different side of the spectrum when it comes to how we see the future of Israel actually transpiring. But the stakes are so high because they saw 200 years ago Judas Maccabeus, and they saw 25 years prior Judas the Galilean step into that moment, and now is the moment of truth. Are you here for a revolution or not? You're doing the things the prior revolutionaries have done. But the moment of truth comes when, like, are you rejecting the ways of Rome, the governing authority of that time? Are you rejecting and saying like no dollars should be spent, no coin, no dinars or should be given to Caesar and his company? Because if you're saying no, well, that's a problem. Because that means you're causing a revolution. Pharisees and Herodians are at hand. These are the two top political parties at the time, so exchange like... Um, you know, donkeys and elephants and consider something like swords and sledgehammers, if you will. The Herodians on one side are a lot like modern-day evangelicals in America. It's like, uh, we're not psyched about the government, but also like, God bless America. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like we are, are not great. We're not like all our trust in the government, but also like, how dare you not put your hand over your heart in the correct posture at that basketball game, Debbie when we sang the national anthem. The Herodians understood that like, you know, Rome, we could, we could file all kinds of beef with them. There's a lot of complaints that certainly could be registered, but at the same time, we got well-built roads. We got clean water. water. We had um, sanitation systems. Man, our kids finally had access to simple kinds of education that we hadn't had prior to. And so like, yes, like they're a problem, but at the same time, they're kind of not too. So let's work with the government. Let's, let's be in bed with the empire at hand. Matter of fact, like if you even consider Jerusalem, the Passover week, the time where like Egypt is holding a Passover party, Egypt is holding a celebration of like when the Jews broke free from Pharaoh's grip, that time that was ripe for revolution. They're kind of the people who are saying like, well, Israel is kind of a tinderbox. One small spark could set the whole thing afire. And like obviously a little bit sketchy, morally like ambiguous, Rome ruling by the sword. But at the same time, we haven't had many problems. Stability has been good. Let's work with the systems at hand. Let's deal with it as is. That's the Herodian perspective. So if Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, no, 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 do not pay Caesar, they will go straight to Pilate and tell him what Jesus said, and Jesus will not make it to tomorrow. His head will be on a plate just like his cousin's head was on a plate. He'll be dead by the morning. 
Flip side is the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the separation movement. The Pharisees were like the Bible-believing people, the people who felt like they were the resistance to the empire of Rome. The Pharisees were those who said, listen, if there's a coin that you are carrying that has Caesar's mug on it, this is just another example of the administration at hand making people of faith compromise their values. They're asking us to carry something that we were never supposed to carry, to give weight to something that we were never supposed to give. Do, Jesus, please, do not give an inch to Rome. Do not give an inch to Caesar. But here's the trap. If Jesus says, like, to these people, the Herodians, for example, at hand, if he says, no, don't give Caesar one of those coins. The equivalent at that time would have been about 25 cents. If he says that, he's dead. Head on a plate. This is the death of that man. But for the Pharisees, if he says, yes, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, it's not the death of the man, but it is the death of that movement. Because Jesus this whole time has been talking about this new kind of kingdom with a new kind of way. Jesus is Lord means that Caesar is not. And implicit inside of that is this idea where I am countering everything that Rome intends to put down. Do you see how this is a trap? <laughs> the snares are set. They want to know Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Galilean. Like what kind of revelation? Are you here to start a revelation? It looks benign on, t on paper here. When you look at the question at hand, it says, are you here? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Do we give to Caesar this or that? What should we do? But the question underneath their question is not that question at all. The question underneath that question is, are you here to start a revolution? Or are you just here to play the game? We've heard all about your bark. Do you have any kind of bite? Which of the two-party system do you properly align yourself with? The Herodians or the Pharisees? Are you with this group or are you with this group? Where are you actually going to decide? Where, what is your ultimate conclusion? And Jesus says, can I see one of your coins? Jesus sniffs out the hypocrisy involved in the moment at hand. And he says, can I see one of the coins that you are carrying in your pocket? And he says, like, why are you bringing me to the test? Mind you, first of all, whenever we ask Jesus to align with any of our political aspirations or try to box him into something so small, we sound like Satan. That sounds really dramatic, but I mean it. Because this is the only other time where Jesus says, why are you putting me to the test? The other time was when Jesus was in the desert with the devil himself, and he says, like, you've been asking if I want the empire, if I'll give up my calling, if I want the riches, if I want bread, if I want all. Why are you putting me to the test? And so when we echo that sentiment of, like, Jesus, are you, are you for us or against us? And by us, I mean some kind of ideology, political worldview, something of that sort. We're echoing Satan, not the, not the fidelity of the church. Jesus says, why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? That's interesting right there. We read it in English and it doesn't sound so profound or so like it's pregnant with depth. But what you need to understand is that when Jesus uses the language here, 
the Greek words that he employs is icon. When he talks about image, when he talks about likeness, he's talking about icon. The icon is the same word that was used at the very start of the scriptural story when God says that you and I were icons of God. We are pressed, stamped, made in the image of God. He deliberately employs this language in the moment to say that when we talk about icons, let's make sure we're having the full conversation. Icons, call back right there. He holds up the coin, plays with it in his hand, lifts it to the light, and he says, whose likeness, whose icon, whose image is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Patty, next slide. If there's, there it is. Thank you. Jesus says to them in response, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God the things that are God's. I, I, I cringe a little bit because you, you can see the crowd right there. They are marveled at what Jesus just said. A lot of us, we have like this baseline. Okay, I guess we should pay our taxes and do our things and sing. Them. All these different pieces where it feels like, well, we ought to give to Caesar. What you need to understand is when the, the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus and they say, what should we do with this tax, the pull tax, equivalent of 25 cents in today's economic terms? What should we do with it? They say, how should we present this gift? Is it a gift to Caesar or is it, should we keep it in our pockets? Jesus doesn't use the same words in his answer that they first posed in his question. The thing that they ask him is a Greek word that it would suggest something like, how should we present this gift, a benevolent offering, a thing that we are offering at the end of our, a, a gift, Christmas gift, Christmas morning surrounding the tree. And Jesus instead opts for something completely different, opts for something that was said 200 years prior to him. When Judas Maccabeus' dad looked at him and said, your one sole responsibility, your task at hand is to pay back the Gentiles, for what they have taken from you. Jesus uses that language. Pay back to Caesar what is Caesar's and pay back to God what is God's. Listen, if Caesar has his face on the coin, if he went through the process and the money and the fiscal investment required to make that sort of thing happen, obviously just give him the coin. Pay it back. But what else does Caesar deserve? If Jesus using the language of like, pay back to Caesar what Caesar deserves, what else does Caesar deserve? The coin that he built, the coin that he made, but how about some accountability? How about some resistance? How about some integrity amidst ambiguity? How about somebody saying no when everybody else is saying yes? How about somebody standing up for what is right when the normative move is to stand up for what is wrong? What else does Caesar deserve? And while we're on the topic, we're talking about paying people back. And the basic like, logic that Jesus is employing here is like if Caesar's mug is on that coin, they give it back to him. Where is God's mug right now? <laughs> give to God what is God's. Pay back to God what God's mug is upon. Well, it's on Caesar. And you. And me. And Dorothy Day. 
and Steve Manning and Adolf Hitler and Virginia Woolf and Stephen King and my little kid Graham and the bro that cuts you off in traffic today and the woman that lets you merge inside. The people who take lives, the people who give lives. Where is God's image stamped upon? Well, Genesis 2, the story of the Christ says each and every one of us. Dorothy Day was once asked, he said like, give to Caesar what is Caesar. How do you make out that text? He says, well, like you can give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but don't forget what Jesus also said, which is give to God what God is God's. And if you do that latter part, there's not going to be much left for the former part. Here's my plea that I, I, I guess maybe particularly I've been feeling this morning. I realize I'm running late. I don't mean to talk long. I apologize, you guys. I'll be better next time. My plea is, though, I feel like we are in, maybe I'm off on this, but we're in these politically, like, tumultuous times where we need people of integrity, people of accountability, people who are rooting themselves in what is true and what is lovely and what is pure and what is sound to stand up. But you have the Pharisees and the Herodians saying, which group are you a part of? Please do not do to Jesus what Jesus wouldn't do to himself. Jesus is operating under a worldview that is much wider than the small two-party systems that we tend to abide inside of. Sledgehammer, sword, elephant, donkey, this or that. Do not do to Jesus what Jesus wouldn't do to himself. I was going to make braces for you all, but the shipping was like way too expensive. I couldn't afford it. I don't have that kind of cash. But when you actually consider what Jesus is saying, so often you and I, we use these heavenly realities, the things that we are rooted inside of to baptize our earthly opinions, and it's not good. We sound like the Pharisees and the Herodians at hand trying to trap the Christ, trying to catch a Christ just like they caught Judas Maccabeus and Judas the Galilean. May it not be so for us. I read this text the other day, um, my AA 24-hour devotional for each day, and the prayer for that particular day was, may I have the courage to wear the world like a loose garment. Did you guys hear that? May I have the courage... Amidst all the opinions, amidst all the people who are saying I need to be this way and not that way, amidst all the different voices that are saying I need to vote or lead or like echo these kinds of claims but denounce those kinds of claims and be about, may I have the courage to wear the world around me like a loose garment because I know whose image is stamped upon me. And so sure, give to Caesar the coin. But make sure you give to God the carrier. Will you pray with me? Jesus, Lord, you are good. Jesus, Lord, you are faithful. You are brilliant, God. There's a reason why that crowd walks away with their jaws on the ground going like, how did you just sidestep that hot mess that just was? Give us the courage, Lord, that, people, that we be people who say no to what is wrong, Say yes to what is right. We're not politically apathetic. We're not detached from the world. We are engaged. But we don't ask Christ to conform to our worldviews. We ask our worldviews to be fashioned after the Christ. Not like Caesar, 
Not like Caesar who defeats every opponent in his way, but like Christ who will die for the opponents because that is the way. Forgiveness, grace, mercy, feeding the hungry, filling the pockets of the poor. This is the kind of kingdom that we're being called to conform to. Christ, give us the conviction and the vision to live faithfully into that calling. I'm tired of playing games that do not reflect that calling. Now is the time. Now is the hour. Christ, we are grateful. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. I love the idea that when they, we give the things to God that are of God, that there's not a lot left for Caesar. And maybe that's our problem is that we don't start there. You know, when we were going through, we continued to just all the turmoil in this country, what's going on politically. I'll always remember the words of our partner on the Global Immersion Project um, that said, our alignment is to Jesus Christ and the things of Jesus. And I think when we remember that, it reminds us of how we're to live and love. It reminds us that we are the beloved of God, that we're created in the image of God. And on Sunday nights, when we gather together in this space, one of the things that we do, part of our rhythm, is to take part in communion together. And so during communion, we invite you all up during the music. There'll be people standing up here, one with bread, one with juice, and you can take that bread, dip it into the juice. And you can be reminded when you walk up who you're aligned with, who you're created in the image of, how we're called to live our life. On the night before Jesus died, he sat at a table with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. Start with me. Likewise, he took the wine and he poured the wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you, the new covenant for everyone. And when you drink from this cup, remember me. That's what we invite you to do is, is remember Jesus, remember who you are. So if you'd please stand and together we will pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, power, glory forever. Amen. You know, I didn't say it tonight, but we say it every Sunday. Regardless of whether or not you picked up anything from Mark 12 or my diatribe about it, we want you to know this, that who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. The whole purpose of reason why that we say, why we say that every Sunday is because we're trying to assist one another in giving each other back to God. 
returning ourselves to our manufacturer settings. Caring for one another's stories. Seeing the person behind the headline. I had the opportunity this past weekend, our Friday morning, where some reporters from WCCO came to my house and they asked me questions about sobriety and art. And I said, you're gonna spin this around and put it out on the nightly news? And they said, now we wanna take a little more care for this story. And I can't tell you how much that meant to me, that you would dignify my story how much would it mean to you if we dignified one another's stories, gave each other back to God? We didn't rush to assumptions, premature conclusions, drop headlines or more fact or more fiction than fact, but we actually gave each other space to grow into the image of God that we have always been. The gospel is not the invitation into who you might someday become, but the announcement of who you already are. Let us live up to what we've already attained. Friends, will you close your eyes, hold out your hands, and receive these words from the heart of God. No matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you have stayed. Please know that in this community, at this table, there will always be a seat for you because you are the beloved child of God, stamped with the image of God and beloved you belong. May you go into your next week always cognizant of that reality. Do whatever you can to not forget it. Go in peace. We love you. We'll see you next Sunday.